0: Whoa!
1: Well, believe it or not, we are at the confluence of two, in a sense, two cycles of the liturgical season, having to do, of course, with the life of Christ. We're still unfolding, believe it or not, what happened on December 25th, and actually if you want to be really precise, what began on March 25th at the incarnation of Christ where the Holy Spirit came, and by the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary conceived our Lord in her womb. He was then born on December 25th. And there were a number of events in his life that the church celebrated that all have to do with his revelation and his condescension. In other words, the showing forth of God and the showing forth of his incredible, incredible love for us by his self-abasement, his self-humility, his self-humiliation, his condescension. And that actually goes through about February 9th, because it's actually the last day of the post-festive of the feast of the encounter of Christ with Simeon in the temple. In the Western church, this is called the presentation of our Lord in the temple. As always, we emphasize different things, but we arrive at the same point, the churches east and west. So, there's this unfolding of the incarnation or really what happened or reached a high point at Christmas, believe it or not, And that incarnation, that revelation of the incarnation is still unfolding. At the same time, we're overlapping, we're at that confluence of the preparation for the next cycle. And that is the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus, no longer as an infant, of course, but as a grown man. In other words, the reason why he was an infant, the reason why he was incarnated, that he took on flesh, that God himself would take on his own creation so that he could save us by taking on death crucifying it at his crucifixion and destroying it, breaking its bonds as he descended into hell after his death, and then raising us up with him at his resurrection. And he raising us even further at his ascension, and then he sends the Holy Spirit. So that's the basic cycle of the, of the church's liturgical tradition, which is the cycle of Christ's life. But right now, we're in between We are overlapping the two cycles as we are preparing for that very, very special season of Lent, the Great Fast. And what we do is, while we're still immersed in the incarnational season, which as I mentioned goes through February 9th, that's the last day of the post-festive of February 2nd, we're immersed in that. At the same time, we begin to prepare ourselves for the coming of Lent. And in the Eastern churches, always with that bell curve they talk about, you know, that rising action, that preparation, the moving into something gradually in stages, and then the, the event itself, or if you want to say the climactic moment, and then the coming out of that, the sort of the falling action or resolution. So we're in the rising action now of Lent which is itself a preparation for the climactic moment of the resurrection. But in that preparation period, that rising action of Lent in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, we have several preparatory Sundays. Today, this Sunday, is the preparatory Sunday of the publican and the Pharisee. And this theme, of course, is one of humility. It's a very well-known gospel. It is the gospel story found in Luke chapter 18. You remember when a Pharisee, a righteous Jew, comes into the temple, goes up front and tells God about how great he is and how righteous he is, because he's unlike other less righteous people, unlike especially the public and The publican, which would have been probably like a tax collector at that time, he stays in the back of the temple, doesn't even raise his eyes up, and strikes his breast and says over and over again, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He repents. He confesses his sinfulness. So the lesson here, and sometimes the Pharisee is painted in an entirely bad light, but actually to be more scripturally accurate and theologically accurate, especially for our purposes, the Pharisee is a righteous man. He lives like most of us think that we live. Notice I emphasize the word think. We fashion ourselves probably, especially in relation to this program, to be quote-unquote good Catholics. We're faithful people, good Christians. We know we're sinners and all that, but basically we think we're doing the right thing. You're listening to this radio program. You're probably on your way to church or coming back from church. Basically, you don't eat meat on Fridays, perhaps, or you will observe the rigors of Lent. You go to church every Sunday. You read the Bible and so on. It's all good. It's wonderful. Yes, that is what we should do. To be righteous is a good thing. Hopefully we are righteous people. The Pharisee believed he was a righteous person, and in the Jewish faith at that time, he probably was. But the point of this gospel, and the reason why the church puts it before our eyes at this particular time, is that with the coming of Christ, it's not necessarily about being righteous in the sense of, well, you keep all the laws and the rules. You know, you keep your nose clean, so to speak, spiritually. You obey the rules, you play by the rules. That's okay. It's right. We should do that. But with the coming of Christ, the reason why we have gospels like this in the time of Christ is that Christ is trying to teach us that our celebrating since Christmas with his coming, we have now a new covenant, a better way, a way that was being prepared for by the whole Old Testament, by the laws of the Old Testament and the prophets We're being prepared now for life in the Spirit. In other words, for what happens in our heart. Jesus always takes the matter to the heart. In other words, the heart is that which is deepest in us, that which is most who we are, like our essence, our fundamental orientation to life and to God. So Christ is concerned about the heart. Not so much the external actions are important, But he's not so much concerned about the external actions. The actions should be determined or they're animated, purified, made authentic, made sincere by what is in the heart. What was in this Pharisee's heart was simply his own self, his own righteousness. I mean, he did things that were right. It's okay. He was justified in that regard. But there was something better, something deeper. And that's what the publican had. The publican had from his heart the sense of who God is and who he, we, are in relation to God. He had that profound sense of the only posture, the only honest posture we could take before God, one of absolute humility, that we are nothing. As we say in the communion prayer in the Byzantine church, we ask God to forgive us our sins for we are sinners of whom we are the first. And we're quoting 1 Timothy. Whom we are the first. Each one of us says to God before we receive communion that we are the worst sinners. What do you mean me? What about that guy over there? What about those people on TV that I see? They do these horrific things. They they kill people and do all kinds of horrible crimes. I'm not like them. Well, right then and there. By thinking that way, we already show ourselves to be sinners. We cannot judge The heart. We can judge the actions, but not the heart. The only heart that we can come close to judging is our own. And that's why we say, in all honesty, of who I am the first. I am the first sinner, because the only person sinned that I can be absolutely assured of is my own. I can only judge external actions of others, but I cannot judge their culpability, what is in their heart. Only God can. So the publican becomes the model. The Pharisee is the model to an extent, but we have to go deeper. And that's what's going to happen to us, or should happen to us, first of all, in response to this great season of the incarnation by what God has done for us, and realizing our littleness, our sinfulness, our lowliness in relation to this God who has done this incredible great mystery of his incarnation. And so the only honest, logical reaction is one of great humility of our sense of lowliness before God. And that's why the Pharisee is not so much justified except in his own mind, but the publican is the one who is truly justified not because it's not in his own mind. All he knows is that he's a sinner, but in the mind of God, he is justified because he knows that he's a sinner and admits it. In the liturgical text for this Sunday, as always, they're very rich in meaning. We'll look at a couple of them says the abundance of virtue is brought down by pride but in the absence of virtue humility obtains justice let us also seek to obtain this gift when we return we're going to talk more about humility and this gift of humility this virtue of humility as we come to that confluence of the great mystery the unfolding of the great mystery the incarnation and christ suffering death and resurrection it's a very interesting period we are in. We are in between, or we are in the both and. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light
0: of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion, and to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. You are listening to the Choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear, On Light of the East, and is sung during the sacred liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at byzantinecatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Willcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. It's no secret that Father Loya and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian Spirituality,
1: Welcome back to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. We quoted from the liturgical text just before the break. The liturgical text for this Sunday, which is a preparatory Sunday for Lent, of the story of the public and the Pharisee from Luke chapter 18. And we said that the abundance of virtue is brought down by pride. Now, that's very interesting. Just like the Pharisee, that implies the Pharisee had abundance of virtue. Now, sometimes he gets a totally bad rap. Remember, he's living according to the faith that he knew. It's just that the faith goes more and deeper than just external observances where we can feel, well, we did everything right. We did all the right things, so we're justified. We can go to heaven. It goes deeper than that. And the liturgical texts say the abundance of virtue is brought down by pride. See, pride is is everything. Let's face it. We know it's, it's a common saying, pride is the mother of all sins. At least I used to hear that when I grew up. It is interesting that in the Eastern churches and the Western churches, when they list their major deadly sins, in the East they call it the passions. In the West, it is pride at the very top of the list of the seven deadly sins. In the East, there are eight. Of course, we're going to be longer, (laughs) and pride comes at the bottom of the list. Gluttony is at the top. In the East and West, we always arrive at the same place, but through different ways. Pride is at the top of the list because it is the mother of all sins, as the West says. And so they put it at the top of their list of deadly sins. The East will say that, yes, pride is the mother of all sins and puts it at the bottom, meaning that if you get through the others, gluttony, fornication, avarice, bitterness, anger, achidia, vainglory, you still have to grapple with pride. The pride will always, always be that challenge. The Eastern spirituality is very, very strong on trying to help us rid ourselves of pride. We are forever debasing ourselves by crying out to God for forgiveness. Lord, have mercy. We see over and over again. We do prostrations, many, many of them. We forever ask forgiveness. We have this marvelous prayer of St. Ephraim during Lent. O Lord, a mass of my life, spare me from the spirit of indifference, despair, Lust for power, idle chatter. Instead, bestow on me, your servant, the spirit of integrity, humility, patience, and love. Yes, O Lord and King, let me see my own sins and not judge my brothers and sisters, for you are blessed forever and ever. Amen. And for each one of those verses, it's actually three verses in that prayer of St. Ephraim, a great Syrian saint. And after each one, we actually do a bow or a prostration. We actually touch our heads to the ground like the publican. We imitate the publican during Lent. That's why this story from Luke's gospel is so so appropriate as a preparatory gospel for Lent. There's also great stories from the Eastern Fathers. We always enjoy the stories and the sayings of the Eastern Fathers, very much a building block of Eastern Christian spirituality. I love a lot of these stories on humility. Here's one. A monk once asked Elder Macarius, now Elder Macarius was a very famous Byzantine Eastern monk, a monk once asked Elder Macarius how to be saved. Saint Macarius asked him, go to the tombs and attack the dead with insults. The monk wondered at the advice, however, the monk wondered at the advice, however he went, as he was told, and cast stones at the tombs, insulting the dead. Then returning, he told what he had done. Macarius asked him, Did the dead notice what you did? He replied, They did not notice me. Go then again, said Elder Macarius, and this time praise them. The monk, wondering yet more, went and raised the dead, calling them righteous men, apostles, saints. Returning, he told what he had done, saying, I have praised the dead. Elder Macarius asked him, Did they reply to you? The monk said, They did not reply to me. Then Elder Macarius said, You know what insults you have heaped on them, and with what praises you have flattered them, and yet they never spoke to you. If you desire salvation, you must be like these dead. You must think nothing of the wrongs men do to you, nor of the praises they offer you. Be like the dead. Thus you may be saved there are other stories like that. one of my other favorites is where a monk is accused by a woman in the village of committing fornication with her. And the townsmen grabbed the monk and say, you're supposed to be a holy celibate monk and you engaged in fornication with one of our girls. We're going to punish you. So they dragged him through the town and shamed him. And as the girl saw this, as she witnessed this, she began to become remorseful to the point where she actually confessed to everybody. Stop, stop hurting the monk. Stop accusing him. He is innocent. I lied. And the men of the town said to the monk, Well, why didn't you tell us you were innocent? You didn't say anything. And the monk said, I know. I knew I was innocent. and I knew what you were doing to me. And it was difficult and painful. But I thought to myself, Maybe I needed the penance anyway for my humility. I know that sounds a little bit severe or a little bit extreme, but there are a lot of stories like this of the holy monks. And remember, their stories are being told to this day, as I have just told you now, and this happened centuries ago. Their names are inscribed in the names of saints, and therefore we know they are in heaven. So who's the strange one, us or them? Who's the smart one? Who's the cool one? Who's the normal one? Us or them? Wouldn't it be great if stories of your virtue were told centuries and centuries later, written in books, and you were declared saints? Well, the key to that is humility. And I don't think we really understand what humility means. And this is why we have these many Eastern fathers, and and so fortunate, are we? Because they do so much to teach us what humility is, as does our liturgy and our prayer. We just can't be humble enough. But we don't understand that in our day and age. It's a very narcissistic time. It's a very me-oriented time. We don't even have it on our radar. We don't have any way to measure that. We have no reference point, really, for the kind of humility that really should be normal for Christians. We don't have a reference point unless, of course, we read the stories, we're brought up and weaned on these stories of these great desert monks and the great saints of the church east or west. If we're really tuned to the liturgy and prayer of the church and how we're constantly made aware of our lowliness like the publican before God, unless we know that, we don't have a reference point. It's completely odd and foreign to us, the kind of humility that the saints had, which actually is the normal, the standard. Related to this humility is what I call deferential love. If you've ever seen an icon of the Trinity, a Byzantine icon of the Trinity, it uses the three angels that visited Abraham in chapter 18 of Genesis. And these three angels are seated around a table because Abraham gave them hospitality. In fact, sometimes this is called the hospitality of Abraham. But actually, it was a foreshadowing of God as Trinity because he represented himself in the form of three angels. Well, those angels, if you've ever seen a Byzantine icon, those angels have their heads bowed to one another. This is the model of deferential love. It comes from God Himself. Within God Himself, there is deferential love as the three persons of the Trinity bow to one another as though each other is more important than the other, but we all know that they are equal, of one essence and substance and so on, consubstantial. Yet they bow to each other as though each one is greater than themselves. Now, if God can do that within himself, how much more so should we practice deferential love? Deferential love means, well, like the word says, to defer to one another. Like St. Paul says in Ephesians 5 to married couples, defer to one another out of reverence for Christ. Imagine if married couples did that. That's the number one thing that is missing from all marriages that have difficulty. Everything else aside, the thing that's missing is deferential love and that's the one thing that can actually heal those marriages everything else aside psychological problems psychoanalysis counseling therapy yeah that's all fine but in the end it's deferential love that heals so humility and deferential love are very very deeply woven in the spirituality of the Church, and in particular the Eastern spiritual masters. And the Church, in her wisdom, knowing that humility is so important to a happy marriage, to happy life, to everything, it's the imitation of God. Knowing that, the Church wisely, as always, in its ingeniousness, puts a lesson of humility in front of us as we prepare for the ultimate season of humility, the season of Lent the season of the great
0: fast. Thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. This is Barbara McWiggin. This is Bishop Robert Barron of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. This is Dr. Greg Popchak. And Lisa Popchak. Thanks for listening to EWTN Radio.
1: Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East.